This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. You can also play our mobile quiz game at deaderliveapp.com. This person died in 2016, age 69. He made his television debut in 1978 playing Tybalt in a BBC version of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> not Muhammad Ali. I don't not, think you can Although I'd love to see the Muhammad Ali Tybalt performance. In an acting career of more than 40 years, he played a panoply of characters. Panoply, good word. Obviously, including Tybalt. <laughs> British Shakespearean actor. There's so many. Ian Holm. Not Ian Holm. Though he was never nominated for an Academy Award, he shrugged off the value of awards in general. Quote, parts win prizes, not actors. I'm gonna say Gary Oldman, but it's not Gary Oldman. Not Gary Oldman, but right in that category. He gained a worldwide audience in Die Hard, playing Hans Gruber, the devious, well-spoken terrorist who took over the fictional Nakatomi Plaza. Also played Snape in Harry Potter. Correct, yeah. Also right in there. the basically Star Trek actors who get abducted by I aliens. I believe you're thinking of Galaxy Quest, correct. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, yes. Alan Rickman, there we go. Today's dead celebrity is Alan Rickman. Oh, yeah, baby! <laughs> I have an absolute mantra, which is that you only speak because you wish to respond to something you've heard. So the notion of an actor going away and looking at a speech they have in their bedroom alone at night is a complete nonsense to me. What you have to say is completely incidental. All one wants to see from an actor, to me, is the intensity and accuracy of their listening. And then what you have to say will become automatic. And then it will be free and alive. And how alive are you to your fellow actors? And how accurate is your response and how bold? Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. I'm Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Alan Rickman died 2016, age 69. Category one, creating the first line of their obituary. Alan Rickman, the accomplished British stage actor who brought an erudite dignity to film roles like Hans Gruber, the nefarious mastermind of Die Hard, and Severus Snape, the dour master of potions in the Harry Potter series, died on Thursday in London. He was 69. Can I start off the bat with a question? Erudite? Yeah. I'm not I can picture it on, like, the overhead projector in preparing for the SAT. I'm just going to Google it real quick. Erudite means— I was a, a math score guy. <laughs> <laughs> Having or showing great knowledge or learning. So it's like a, a learned person. A learned, okay. Yeah. Yes. Erudite. <laughs> erudite. Erudite. There is no, I, uh, Erudite. No, I, I was saying erudite. 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 It is erudite. It is erudite. It's not erudite. I was adding a syllable. Motherfucker. Clearly and neither of us er- are if we're. No, we can't come off dumb at the beginning. <laughs> so that's the word okay. you want to talk about, erudite? Well, I think you said it. It's just a complicated way to say learned. Yeah. Learned. Erudite dignity, though. I mean, it's a modifier. To back up a little bit, one thing that's interesting to me about this obituary is they name, I think, his two most memorable performances. Without a doubt, which were bookended his entire film career. They actually managed to get quite a bit into this obituary. There's a lot of shoehorning going on. But they say British stage actor. Yeah. So they got stage actor in there. Erudite Dignity is referring to a lot of the performances. The general performances of Alan Rickman. Correct. Who brought an Erudite Dignity to film roles like Hans Gruber, and then they describe him as a nefarious mastermind, and then Severus Snape, who's a dour master of potions. Dour. Dour. Okay, let's go into that word. I love it. I mean, I love it. It's a crazy complicated sentence, but I love the the words that are in here. Because you, I mean, I, I don't know, to... I guess one thing that's kind of funny to me about, like, the vocabulary, the wordsmithing and the, um, you know, word choices that are going on in this obituary is that they're all 
Like you want to apply all of them to Alan Rickman. Yes. Not just his performances, right? So I think the blurring of lines between the man and the characters he played, I think they're having some fun with that here. Yes. It's that there's always dignity, but half the time there's a villain behind it. Yes. Which is the opposing words like erudite and nefarious. Yes. Uh, I think they captured it really well. Yeah. And accomplished British stage actor. Yes. I feel like it's been a while since we've come across a first line of an obituary where they really got out the thesaurus to, you know, put this thing together. Do you do the man a disservice by calling to, you know, memory and, and calling to attention his two most memorable roles? I mean, they're the first two I think of, Snape and Hans Gruber. Yep. But I don't know. I mean, is there even a third that should be talked about? Not really in film. No, and I think that's an opinion. Too. Yeah. Everything in between tends to be somebody's opinion. What would be an alternative structuring? You might remember him from yeah, Love Actually nah. and Dogma. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. Was there a direct reference to the voice? No. Actually, that's really interesting because I think you could honestly say that's an omission. But no, there's no reference to the voice. And I do think that that is, I mean, he is on the Mount Rushmore of most important, memorable Voice. I think we'll get to that. I mean, there was a scientific study behind it. Oh, I didn't see the study. I think okay. I got my score. Do you want me to go first? Yes. I'm going to go eight. Okay. Yeah. I'm docking two for the voice. I think that that's worth two points. Uh, what's funny is I'm actually only docking one for the voice. Oh. Because I like the extensive verbiage. Yeah. As we've discovered. So I'm going nine. All right. Eight and a nine. Yeah. Bravo, New York Times. Okay. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. I've got a lot. I think you need to go first, and I think we need to talk about the book. Madly Deeply, The Diaries of Alan Rickman. Which was just released. A few days ago. A few days ago, right? Which uh, the publisher sent us an advanced copy, which is very Yes, and you read it. As much as I possibly could. It's not like a page-turning book in terms of Like, it's diaries, right? It's a lot of sentence fragments. But yeah, I mean, I combed through it very heavily. All right. All right. Uh, Well, kick us off then, Michael. I think this is the right language for this. I might invite you to help me come up with better words here. I wrote mistaken first impressions. Okay. What I mean by that is people often had the wrong take on him. That what we thought about him and what is actually true about him, near as I can tell— are not easily seen. And I kind of like that there's a mysteriousness about him, even in what's knowable about him. There's a mysteriousness about the inner life. But more than that, I like the misinterpretation of Alan Rickman. So I think first and foremost is people thought he was cold. He was asked a lot in interviews, you know, you get cast as the villain a lot. And he would say, Think about how many roles have actually been cast as the villain in. That's not totally true. You've misinterpreted me. People also thought of him as very unapproachable. And actually, I'm going to read from the Emma Thompson tribute, just because I feel like this captures some of what I'm trying to get at, the contradictions. She says, of all the contradictions in my blissfully contradictory friend, this combination of profoundly nurturing and imperturbably distant. He was not, of course, distant. He was alarmingly present at all times. The inscrutability was partly a protective shield. He was generous and challenging, dangerous and comical, sexy and androgynous, virile and peculiar, temperamental and languid, fastidious and casual. The list could go on. I'm sure you can add to it. Like, what to make of this man? He's just not easy to read. And I love that about him. You feel like sort of like, I got it. And then you don't got it, you know? And I actually, here's why I wanted to put this as thing number one, too. I think you and I also both kind of enjoy this. People often have the wrong take on me, you the, know? The bearded Texan. Yeah, I'm easy to sort of slap a stereotype on, and like, I've got him figured out. And I enjoy the process of watching somebody say, oh, you're not who I thought you were, yes. you know? I've had that experience with you. This came up in a previous episode where we were talking about going to the widespread panic show. I was like, this guy's into panic? Yes. And, and, and I guess it's because people have a lot of unconscious bias or assumptions about who others are. 
But I like that there's just so much to like discover about Alan Rickman, and it's a reminder of how much I like to discover about other people overall. Yeah, it's that physical appearance, body language, and voice can be incredibly misleading. And I like that play of throwing somebody off the scent of who you actually are. Yeah, it's kind of like when you like you're in elementary school and you're winning like the thumbs up game. Yeah, it's you've thrown them off. Yeah, right. With the clue because you tapped their thumb so gently. That they don't know who you are. Exactly. And that's kind of what I feel. The same kind of victory if somebody gets me wrong. And obviously that does lend itself to like a great acting talent. And I think he is a top shelf actor, right? He is one of the greats. So that's my number one. Okay. I thought you'd like that one. I do. Okay, so I'll take number two. I'm going to go turn back the clock a little bit. Mm. The leap into acting a little late into his professional life. Alan Rickman was cast in Die Hard at the age of 41, Which, can I pause on that? Were you shocked when you discovered that? That that was his first role? Well, or that he was in his early 40s when he was in Die Hard. No, that number seems about right to me. I think he plays younger. I think he he could have easily passed for 32. Really? Yeah, I think so. Like, to learn that he was 42 when Die Hard came out surprised me. I I have this thing that, like, if anybody's playing a German, I'm just going to assume— 40s at a minimum. That's fair. I don't think Germans are younger than 40. Back to judging the vice <laughs> cover. That's good, yeah. Um, what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is that even his stage acting was a late leap. Yeah. So out of school, he was in theaters, you know, casually, but out of school, he started a graphic design business with his buddies, but that actually did pretty well. And he decided after a few years to take the leap into acting um, from there into stage 20, acting. 26 years old when he made that decision. Correct. So he was a graphic designer that owned his own agency. Then he became a dresser, literally like after he left that dressing stage stars. Yeah. And then finally getting into roles and eventually by his late 30s landing leading roles. What I love about that is that it's possible. Yeah. It's that simple. I hate to say it's a movie-like story, but it is. You know, you have this thing about somebody working in a creative business or doing something, but they're dreaming about being on stage or being on film because that's their true calling. And then they actually do it. And it may take 10 years, it may take 15 years, but they do it and they like nail the shit out of it. Yeah. And so I love that this is not a fairy tale, but it kind of sounds fairy tale-ish when you describe it that way. Well, I also do feel like, so this is a little bit of an addendum to your number two. I do feel like he was a little bit more well-equipped to deal with the trappings of Hollywood fame by becoming famous at age 42. Oh, right? completely. Yeah, that, that he knew how to handle it. I don't think he knew how to handle it exactly, but I think, like, it didn't go bad for him the way it goes bad for some people who experience fame before they're ready. Yeah, it's the perfect narrative for an erudite actor, yeah. right? Like, the cocaine era was pretty much over. He wasn't going to get, like, thrown into this, like— uh, fast and loose Hollywood life. Well, but it's not even just the timing. I'm also speaking to, like, where he's at in his life. Like, by mid-40s, you know, he's, we'll get to the love and marriage category later, but some, like, bigger questions about who am I and what am I doing on this planet have been answered for Alan Rickman, you know, by the time he's like, and now you get fame, and now everybody's going to remember Die Hard. It's going to be one of the biggest movies of all time. And your role is going to be talked about even in the first line of your obituary. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my number two, jump from professionalism into acting. Beautiful. I'm so glad you got that one. All right, I'll go number three. I wrote actors, actors, or maybe performers, performer. I know that's not real creative, but this is something that you and I were talking about before the interview. This is something I really come to care about on Famous and Gravy. When others in your profession say he is a great amongst us, amongst our collective, amongst our fellowship, but it's not just that other people said he is a great actor. It was also that he was like a super generous actor. Some of the examples were this, like he kept going to Daniel Radcliffe's performances well after Harry Potter, and he would have lunch with him. He kept up with Jason, Kevin Kevin Smith Smith and Jason Muse. Yeah, yeah. The Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah, like he would hang out with them years after Dogma. Rarely in this life do you meet anybody as fucking good at their job as this man was at his job. But he was such a fucking good dude, like a really fucking good dude. And here's how I know. 
When he died, the first thing I thought about was, fuck, I didn't get to tell him how important he was to me and my family. The man, like, maintained a friendship with me, and this is what I was thinking about the other day. I never reached out to him because he was fucking Alan Rickman, you know what I'm saying? I didn't want to bug that guy. But I hung out with that guy a lot. He went to a lot of family things. He went to, like, my wife's birthday and stuff, and I realized that every time he instigated that relationship, like, he wanted to be fucking friends with me, and this was, like, a genius. Never fucking understood that in this life, but the dude actually fucking kind of liked me and liked my work. And It also sounds like the friends that he had in the UK that he came up with in the theater, like he kept up with them regardless of their success. He didn't ditch his friends once he became famous. And it sounds like he was like a truly giving spirit and very nurturing of everybody. I think this is a guy trying to lift everybody up. I think he's trying to make everybody better and feel welcome. And in doing so, in giving, he becomes a great at his craft. And I don't, the life lesson there, I mean, it's not just actor's actor. It's sort of like, I love that kind of spiritual idea that the more you are giving of yourself, the more you find out who you really are and the more you become self-actualized. Where I thought you were going with actor's actor was that he is an actor who is very well regarded by his peers, which is true, but what you were saying is beyond that, he is one who gave to the peer group and yeah. to the younger people and lifted them up. He's an ambassador for the whole profession in a way. Actor's actor, at least that, but it's more than that. Like, leader of actor and actresses and other performers on set. Yes. I mean, he also would apparently hang out with the crew. I mean, he was real, like, he wasn't above it. Even And this is one of his contradictions. Even though he kind of looks like a upper-class snobby guy in a way, I think he was, like, really ready to get dirty with anybody. Yeah. This quality exists far beyond acting. Yes. Right? It's the same thing as being, you can be a programmer's programmer. You can be an accountant's accountant. Yeah. You can be an anyone's anyone. It is a human trait that it can be replicated if you are someone that is good at something. And you're passionate about what you're doing. And I think, to your point, it's desirable to find your thing and then, like, be part of the crowd of people doing that thing. Yes. Yeah, well said. So I've got the wrong language there, but that's my number three. Okay. I'm going to go with, and maybe I'm being a little loose with these words, uh, I'm going to say turned a deformity into an asset. Ah, uh, are you talking about the voice? Yeah. yeah. So he was born, I don't know what the exact name is, but with a very tight jaw. Yeah. And he actually had to go to— um, A speech therapist. A speech right? therapist, right? He couldn't talk properly, but the results of doing all of that speech pathology work, and this is a shout-out to I have a few friends who are speech pathologists, mm. he came out with this miraculous voice. One teacher said, you, you have a voice that sounds as if it's coming out of the back end of a drain pipe. So— <laughs> There was a great deal of hard work uh, going on. Uh, it's an accident. Whatever one's voice is, is a mixture of an accident of nature because it's like what's the architecture yeah, exactly of the inside right, of your yeah. mouth. I happen to have this very high roof. Yeah. So I suppose there's some kind of resonance chamber there, yeah. which is as much a curse as it is a blessing. That's heartwarming yeah. if it is not anything more than that. It's desirable, certainly, because it's encouraging for anybody that has an insecurity or has something that's sort of judged negatively, be that in a physical sense or an emotional sense, and became his greatest asset. When I was doing research for this episode, I was uh, in the bedroom, like, watching a YouTube clip, and uh, Allison, my wife, walks in and goes, yeah, that voice does something. And, like, she was, like, clearly... Charged up. I mean, in 1995, by Empire Magazine, voted the 34th sexiest man alive. Yeah, right? Yeah. And it's mostly, I think, the voice. It's all the voice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the hair was kind of okay, I think. Sure, he's not an unattractive man, exactly. But I think the voice is doing something really rich and resonant, you know? I mean, he's asked about it a lot in some of the interviews. And he said, look, you know, I don't hear what you hear because I deal with the same thing we all deal with. When I hear my voice on an answering machine, it doesn't sound like me. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that's why we have a category about that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, okay, so that's number four. That's great. That's uh, a good good way of getting the voice in there because I had the voice as a whole separate thing, but your answer is way more creative. Gosh, all right. I just want to go with great taste. I think especially in movies, one thing that is kind of maybe the most fun thing about this memoir that came out is his Snap Judgment movie reviews. Like I, I've got a couple here. Let's see. 
Forrest Gump. I had sworn I wouldn't go. I went, and it was as horrific as I thought, but in a totally different way. A clear attempt had been made to dilute the sentimentality, but along the way, the film had its cake, ate it, spat it out with Vietnam, unnamed viruses, etc. Like, I love that take on Forrest Gump. Let's see. He had Shawshank Redemption. Expertly done would be the review. Not a move wrong. Classic. I just wish they had not extended the immaculate hairdos to all of the inmates. <laughs> when will the director tell a hair person to stop tidying everyone up? It's an awful reflexive action. I mean, the great taste thing goes way beyond that. In his memoirs, you get a feel for what the dinners taste like and what the vacations smelled like and felt like. I mean, he is living a very tasteful life, kind of like all throughout, night and day. As somebody who's experiencing life, he's got great taste. Whenever young actors now say to me, what advice do you give me? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about training, I want to be an actor, whatever. I say, forget about acting. Um, and I really mean it at, at that point in time, because whatever you do as an actor is, is cumulative. It's mm. about, so I say, go to art galleries, listen to music, know what's happening on the news in the world, and uh, form opinions, develop your taste and judgment so that when mm. a quality piece of writing is put in front of you, your imagination, which you've nurtured, has something to bounce off of. Yeah, and you're in uniqueness. Uh, his life is very, very rich, not in a materialistic sense, but in an experiential sense. You know what I mean? In terms of his pursuit of quality. Exactly. And okay. I mean, there's almost an Anthony Bourdain-like quality to, his, to, to the way he describes his day-to-day -day life, where he's going, who he's meeting, what he's doing. I mean, it really is just like very rich with adventure. I could see that. Did they ever cross paths? Did that come across I, I, you in know, the book? You know, actually, it's a, I don't know. But it's one thing they do have in this book is a great index. Louis Borges? No. No. Elizabeth Bowen? No. Feels like they should have, but no. You know that movie where those two British guys, like, drive across Spain? They just eat and talk a lot? Yeah. That's what I could kind of see being a cast across from Bourdain. Yeah, I could totally see that. As soon as you picture that, it's good. Maybe that's happening on the other side right now. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. So that's my number five. Okay. Let's recap. I said mistaken first impressions. You had... A uh, later leap from professionalism into acting. Yeah. Uh, I had actors, actor, although it's more like leader of actors and actresses and performers overall. Then I had number four, taking a disadvantage into an extreme advantage. And then I had great taste. Okay. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. What do you got, Amit? Okay, I feel a little guilty because when we excavated the obituary, they only talk about Die Hard and Harry Potter, yeah. and I'm going to bring in Die Hard. I'm going to bring in Harry Potter, so that's fine. Okay, <laughs> so we're doing the same. Yeah. Okay, so Die Hard, he played the villain Hans Gruber. Yeah. This was his first film role, yep. 1988. And if anybody listening has not seen Die Hard and does not want to know how it ends, you may want to just fast forward about 30 <laughs> seconds. I don't think it's going to ruin anything. So the movie ends— The bad guy dies. Yeah, the bad guy dies, but the bad guy dies by falling out of a window— I think, actually, to get even more specific, he's hanging on to the wrist of Bruce Willis's wife, and she's wearing a watch, and Bruce Willis is fumbling around trying to undo the watch, which causes Hans to plunge to his death. Correct. So this, being the late 80s, was pre-CGI, yeah. right? So in order to do a scene like that, you have, you know, your green screens, you have to have a stunt actor do it, but you have to have the initial actor take the the plunge at first. Yeah. And so how they did that is they actually did do a 20-foot drop where they built a wall and there was a mattress at the bottom uh, and the stunt coordinator, whoever it was, was holding on to Rickman, which was the, the, the stand-in for this watch, yeah. and then was going to drop him uh, so they could get the footage of his face dropping. Yeah. How this stunt manager did it is he told Alan Rickman, said, okay, I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to drop you. So he goes, okay, one, and drops him. <laughs> you know, he pulled, like, the old elementary school <laughs> trick. And so then for the next uh, however many seconds at 9.8 meters per second squared, yeah. uh, Alan Rickman is falling. So that is my Malkovich is that fall, because I want to see what is going through his head. And a couple of questions I have that I want to know 
is number one, I'm a man of the theater, and this is my first film, and this is the bullshit they're going to do to me. Um, fuck Hollywood. Exactly. Fuck Hollywood. And number two is probably when fuck this guy. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I'm I'm the lead villain here. Yeah. Don't pull this bullshit on me. <laughs> and number three is, like, you never outgrow this stuff. Like, the same things at the playground or in middle school PE, <laughs> whatever, are still showing up in your professional life in your 40s. And I think that's actually, like, really important. Yeah. All these ideas huh. of escapism and arrival and fame and success, you know, you think you leave behind, like, some of these trappings and all. But no, he's still getting dropped on the count of one. (laughs) And so I want to know all those things that are going through his head in that free fall. You know what's great about that one? Is we've got a video to watch it. Like, you can see it in his face, right? Like, it's really memorable the way his, like, oh, shit, his face contorts. I hope that's not a hostage. God, that's a good one, Ahmed. Thank you. Yeah, I really like the way you made it about, like, Damn it, I will never be validated as a human. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, I said I was going to make mine about Harry Potter. So the timing of Harry Potter is kind of interesting. I hadn't put this together until I did the research for this episode, that only like two or three books had come out by the time they decided they were going to make these films. And they knew that there were going to be seven books, but nobody knew how it ended. So the books are being written by J.K. Rowling at the same time that the movies are being shot with a little bit of lag in between them, right? So he gets cast, maybe one of the best castings of all time. He's so fucking perfect as Snape. So he is trying to get his head around Severus Snape and the character. And he's really struggling, and he finally requests to talk to J.K. Rowling and said, I've got to know where this is going a little bit. And so he reached out and uh, and said, can we have a phone call? She was with her sister at the time, and she said, I can't talk now. So that's how close she held everything to herself. And so we arranged to speak the next day when she was on her own. And then she gave me one very small piece of information, which I always have vowed I would never, ever repeat, even though the books are now done and everything. So I I won't repeat it. It wasn't a fact. It was just a kind of clue that made him a little, there was something more human. It is, by the way, revealed in this book. And I'm not going to reveal it here because even though it's knowable and even though you can read the book, what I love about this is that he kept a secret, even beyond when he had to, even when it became public, what we know about Snape. He said, she asked me never to tell, and so I'm never going to tell. Yes. So I love that. I also, like, to be let in on where this character is going, and it and it's you and the author that know kind of the direction of this and nobody else, like— That is top secret. That is high security clearance, you know, stuff. And he gets to— Yeah, these are the nuclear codes, really, to know the ending of Harry Potter. And, and I mean, if you, you know, if you go back and watch the movies or read the books, like, this character that's presented to us as a villain ultimately ends up becoming kind of a hero, right? In some ways, the second most important character of the whole series. I mean, it's really an outstanding story arc. And he's hanging on to this one little piece of information because of a phone call with J.K. Rowling. Yes. I love that. I just want to know, like, what that feels like to know that, to be let in on that, and then to hang on to it all the way to your grave. Yeah. Would you want to hold something like that? You know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said no. I have come to take it very seriously that I want to be a man who can keep secrets. So, yeah, you're goddamn right. I want to know. Yeah. I mean, I, and I'm not talking about the voyeuristic, like, interesting part of it. What's more important, I think what's more admirable here is the trustworthiness of it. I realized that should I ever spill the beans, that costs you, me, the franchise, everything, everybody, something. And I'm somebody who can be trusted. So that's my Malkovich moment. Okay, great one. One last thing on Malkovich, just because I got to get this out. I wonder, this is speculation, but I wonder if he had a gripe with John Malkovich himself. So before he got cast in Die Hard, Alan Rickman played in some play, I can't even pronounce it. It's like Les Jeux Dangerous. It's Dangerous Liaisons, however you say that in French. And he did not get cast in the movie. John Malkovich did. And then later, one of his reviews in the diary was for In the Line of Fire. On the plane, watched In the Line of Fire, unbelievable diehard ripoff. Adversaries on the phone to each other, (laughs) falling from a skyscraper, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I was like, Malkovich didn't come up a whole lot more in this diary. I wonder if he's like, fuck that guy. Yes. <laughs> anyway, wanted to get that in. All right, let's pause. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Former Attorney General Janet Reno. Alive. The rules are simple. Dead or alive. Lost her in 2016. Dan Quayle, former vice president. Oh, he's alive. Correct. Dan Quayle is still with us at 75 years. Author Jackie Collins. Alive? <laughs> we lost her in 2015, I'm afraid. Test your knowledge deadoralive.app.com Category 4 Love and marriage How many marriages Also how many kids And is there anything public About these relationships It's very public I love this one I think it's fascinating You do it's, Well it's just so unique So Rima They met when They were teenagers In like an acting class Or and, something And they were friends For yes. a number of years then they became partners, did not marry until 2012. Alan is age 66. He dies at 69. So they're married a little less than four years. It's like three years plus. Yeah, they've been partners for something like 48, 49 years. Right. So we have one marriage, three and a half years, you yes. know, and that's it, right? And she's, you know, sort of an interesting figure in her own right in political circles and so forth. Yes. She was a councilwoman, ran for parliament. Yeah. Yeah. She was a politician. And no kids? And no kids. And that's it. Okay. But th there's more to it. I think we got to discuss some of Oh, this. God, yeah. What did you make of this? So first thing is seemingly like no other partners or lovers. Yeah. Right? If they, I mean, he's not documenting any other affairs in his diary. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe they don't exist. Hard to know. I, I don't know the nature of this relationship with Rima. Let's assume no other relationships. Um, Which I think outside, is a safe assumption. Yeah, outside of, of their relationship or even before the age of 16 that he met. Yeah. So you have a single partner for 50-something years. You do get married, but that even just seems to be ornamental. Or uh, a, a, a formality due to his terminal illness. That's the story, is they got married after he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is what yes. took him out. So my question that I pose to you is this one and only partner— for a lifetime. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm saying like he may not have ever been on a date with anyone else. Here's how I read it. There's no question I'm going to put my foot in my mouth right now, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You mentioned a minute ago, he was ranked as one of the sexiest men on the planet. I mean, I think he was, especially after he achieves Hollywood fame, I'm sure there were women throwing themselves at him. His wife is not, I don't want to sound like an asshole here, but not a knockout. It's not like he's married to, or partnered with a supermodel. I love that, actually. That, to me, speaks to a, a genuine connection, that I see him as a man who sees inner beauty. And I see that in his friendships as well as with his relationship with Rima. I also, you know, the way she comes up in the diary and the way they're talked about, like, it is soulmate stuff. 
I mean, it really does sound like, you know, kindred spirit kind of connection. I also, maybe it's just they're British and they can get away with it or something, the, the not getting married and not having kids, but there's nothing awkward to me about the fact that they don't have children and the fact that they weren't married. It seems like sort of an artist's move or something that can only happen if you're a true thespian and stage actor or something. And I'm not sure anybody sort of falls into a non-married partnership and long-lasting monogamous commitment like this. But from what it looks like to me, this looks like high marks that we've had on other shows. Whether you're talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her husband Marty or Yogi Berra, this looks like a fucking great relationship. Yes. From what I can tell. Yeah. I mean, he even says, I saw this quote, we're just as messy and complex as any other couple. We go through as many changes, but I respect her. I can sit in a room and just read and not say anything to each other for an hour. And then she'll read something to me and we'll both start giggling. There's a picture that's not hard to see to me of a soulmate. So you don't think there's any missing out on life itself by not, uh, you know, just even just experiencing the love, however you define that, of of more than one romantic partner? No, I think that you may ask yourself questions at times. Um, what I see more than anything else is friendship at the root of a partnership. I'd say the one thing that is, I mean, you know, so there's two really interesting things here. One is that they didn't get married until the very, very end. And almost it seemed like a formality so that it would make the, you know, inheritance. Estate. And- estate, yeah. The other thing is no kids, which is striking in a way, especially for two people who seem to be in love. And one thing he said, and this is a little coy, he said, you should remember— There's two of us. I'm not the only one involved. There's another person here. I would have loved a family. Sometimes I think in an ideal world, three children, age 12, 10, and 8, will be dropped on us, and we will be great parents for that family. Here's what I took away from that quote, that he respects our decisions. Yeah. It seemed like they both made this decision not to have children, and it does seem like maybe even a regret, um, but one that he's willing to accept. And, you know, doesn't talk a whole hell of a lot about. I do think that uh, his instincts as a sort of father, I mean, he is described on set sometimes as a a foster parent to other actors. I also think that there's something about the lifestyle itself. I mean, he is jetting all over the place, whether it's on set or on vacation or to go to high society parties or whatever, that would have made a, you know, kind of routine, simple family life a little bit complicated. So I think— Maybe it's good. And it brings up a question which we have no real answer to in modern life because we don't have a generally accepted way to conduct ourselves or live to find meaning, purpose, and legacy. Yeah. Right? The the simplest way to do that is to have children, which has just been passed on forever. But, you know, the times are changing. Yeah. And we don't have a good answer for that. I'm not saying that Alan Rickman has— posed any sort of answer or solution to that. But maybe that's what we get to eventually at Famous and Gravy as we kind of go through more of these people because there is no answer. In some situations, you have a lot of people having children where they either maybe didn't really want to or one of the two didn't really want to Yeah, because there's not a clear alternative to purpose, meaning, and legacy. Yeah, there's all this societal pressure to do it. You and I have talked about this before. Uh, you know, I think that there is a kind of gift here. I, I mean, that's the thing is that there there is, despite the fact that he doesn't have children, he has a clear commitment to family, both Rima, but also his siblings. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but sometimes I perceive a discomfort in people I know who either have not had children or are choosing not to have children. Sometimes, and it's because there's this fucked up, weird societal pressure to have kids come hell or high water, Right. It's really nice to be able to point to somebody and say, you don't have to have kids and you can be a mensch, you know? I, I agree, but we don't have the alternative answer to meaning, purpose, and legacy. Aren't the films legacies? I don't know. I mean, Isn't this is a whole other of- spinoff of the show. But yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of legacies. We all leave behind legacies in certain ways. And for him, yes, the films are legacies. But will the name Alan Rickman even ring a bell in 20 years? Uh, it's a healthy public conversation yeah. to be had. Yeah, I agree with that. We don't have that many examples of that on this show. It's uncommon, period, up until this point. I think we'll see a lot of people in our generation where that's more common. I agree. And certainly the generations after us. But yeah, you certainly don't see it very often at all in fame. Yeah. And I think he loved kids, among other things. I mean, I think that there's actually a lot of evidence that he really connected with the 
children on the Harry Potter set, he would apparently make time. I mean, people, kids on the street would say, ah, it's Snape. And he would like hang out. He was like, I'm not really Snape. You yeah. Know? Like, well, there, there you go back to your number one of misconceptions, right? Yeah. Like you can kind of assume that somebody who is married or partnered but chooses not to have kids or they collectively decide to not have kids that they don't like children. Yeah. This is not true in this case. That's right. So thank you for that, Alan Rickman. Yes. All right, next category. Category five, net worth. I saw 16 million. That is, yeah, that's right. That seemed a little low. Really? Harry Potter. Did you hear these stories that they'd take friends out to dinner and he would actually like seek out the wait staff before they brought the check because he didn't want anybody else to get the bill. And when anybody would say, Alan, what are you doing? He would say two words, Harry Potter. That franchise is insane. Correct, in but how seven big, films? How films. big was that cast, though? It was a giant. I guess. I mean, but I don't know. I, I, Sixteen. I, I was very happy with it. I just if I, if I had seen a hundred million, I'd have believed it. Maybe, but never a leading role. You know, never That's an true. Academy Award. Uh, what well, that is shocking. And the, the money didn't start coming in until his mid forties. You know, yeah. if not later than that. And he, besides these things that we're talking about of Die Hard, Love Actually, Galaxy Quest, Harry Potter. It's a lot of art house stuff in between. Yeah, and a lot of stage work. I know you talked me into it. It's the right number. Yeah. Let's call it the right number. And there's the question, where does it go? I mean, Rima has it. She's not going to live forever. A good chunk of it went to charities when he died. And, I mean, they really committed to a lot of causes in Africa. They were committed to the arts. I mean, I, I suspect that. And very they, politically active. Correct. In, correct. in Britain. That's right. That's right. I mean, he was hanging out with Tony Blair before he became prime minister. All right. Category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. All right. On The Simpsons, never voiced himself, there is a tribute to both him and David Bowie because they died something like four days apart. Yes. Alan is voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch, who yes. did apparently a great impersonation. I don't know. Did you see that Jimmy Fallon thing where there's the— I did. Oh, God. Okay. Uh— Rolling down the street, smoking in dough, sipping on gin and juice. <laughs> Laid back. Oh the Simpsons episode is called Love Indubitably. Okay. Um, but so that's what we got for The Simpsons. I would like to make an emergency declaration of love to my poor but cheeky secretary. What, me? Eliza Pommenbottom? Love is more powerful than all my magic. Hard to believe that country used to rule anything. Saturday Night Live, Martin Freeman hosted Saturday Night Live in 2014. There was a joke in the opening about how all the British actors are friends, and Alan comes on, he's impersonated, and he's wearing the character of Snape. But other than that, I never saw him on Saturday Night Live. There is no Hollywood star which sort of shocked me. There are some people calling for the star, but it hasn't happened yet. Interesting. Oh, I know. The Harlem Globetrotters got a star. However, he did show up on Arsenio Hall. No way. <laughs> Post like Die Hard? I was going to say, do I need to retire this Arsenio Hall thing? Actually, it was Prince of Thieves. This may just be a Robin joke. Robin Hood, between... Prince of Thieves. Ah, which is yeah, because that was perfect timing. Totally for perfect. And what's interesting is on the subject of Prince of Thieves, it came up over and over again that he upstaged Kevin Costner. Yes. He was asked about this over and over, and he's like, I had my role. He, you know, I, you know like he, he didn't seem to want to trash Kevin Costner, even though that's another, like, iconic Alec Rickman role. Yeah. The, the, I mean, he's hilarious. I'm surprised it's taken us this long in the episode for it to come up. Seriously. That's it. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And call off Christmas. I think overall, if we're talking about the nature of Alan Rickman's fame, I think you really can't overplay the Snape thing. This was a little bit, you know, I didn't get really into the movies, but there are generations of people who grew up with those movies. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, Han Solo or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, they are going to forever associate Alan Rickman with Snape. So, and I do think that they, those movies are timeless. Like, they're going to be watched 50 years from now, and they'll be as great because the books are so good and the stories are so good. The name recognition, though? Is the name going to hold up? I don't know. It's a good question. I, I kind of think, I don't know, he's of a class. He's sort of cut from a cloth of, like, great thespians that 
the presence and depth he brings to every character and the range. I mean, I, he's he is one of those actors who disappears into the roles. Like, I don't see Alan Rickman when I watch his movies. I see the character he's portraying, which is not an easy trick. So I don't know. The name may live on. I mean, I guess it doesn't have like casual name recognition. Yeah, I, I speculate that it won't. I don't, I mean, I'm rooting for his legacy. So yeah. I speculate that it's just going to be like, oh, that guy. Yeah. And that's what we're going to think of him. Maybe. Final note on the pop culture category. Did you catch the family guy? No. Okay. It's going to, it's going to fit in absolutely perfectly in a later category. So I'll bring it up. Wonderful. Oh, I can't wait for this. All right. Category seven, over, under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So getting data on the Brits is not easy because the websites I'm finding break it out into five-year chunks. So I had to go, uh, he's born in 1946. The data for 1945 was 64.01 years for a British man. He died at 69. So he's over by the UK stats I found. Yeah. And, and those, I mean, they probably changed drastically those years because World the War II ended. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So we can say right about average? I think so, although it he feels young. 69 feels he young. He does feel young. And it was it was tragic because of the way, too, that he guarded the disease. Yeah. Because he died of pancreatic cancer. Um, it was a surprise. It was a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, more than it was tragic. Yeah. It's without a doubt sad. Is it robbery? Is it God stealing? I I don't know. You're right. It is right on the cusp there. It looks young to me. And we've been on a little bit of a streak the last few episodes of people dying young. I we hear did a 69. lot of 60s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and here's the thing. is like somebody dies at 71, I'm like, yeah, young, but I get it. 69 is like, yeah, they're young. There's, It's not a two-year difference between those two somehow to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, the 60s versus 70s are, are really, there's a psychological thing that happens with how we consider them young and tragic. Rob, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, he even made a joke once that, like, this is an industry obsessed with youth, and I'm still getting cast, and I'm grateful for that. I'm still getting roles. I think that there would have been roles available to him. He had begun to move into directing. And I do think that he is somebody who's, like, trying to lift everybody up. So I think he he left a void. I was saying this to Allison um, yesterday. I was like, this is the first one where I almost cried. Like, I got really sentimental and sad, like, in revisiting him and just looking at the outpouring of when he died. You know, I think it says something that we're 34 episodes into Famous Engraving. This is the first time a death has hit me hard, you know? Maybe I'm just, like, starting to get honest yeah. about what our fucking show is about, right? But well, I, I admitted it in John Prine. I think that was the first yeah. of our episodes that I really felt it. I didn't expect to. I didn't have some deep connection with Alan Rickman, but there was— Something, and, and maybe it is the generousness of spirit that I see sort of exp expressed in the background throughout his career that made me, like, sad that we lost this guy. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to imagine that the the later chapters would have been incredible. Like, yeah. I think he could have— Not I, hard to picture that. Yeah, I think about—what's well, the name of the guy that plays Logan Roy in— Oh, yeah, Succession. yeah, yeah, Brian Cox. And like, they, were, they were buddies, by the way. Yeah, and that would totally—I could totally see Alan Rickman doing yeah. that type of character in, in another, another 15 years or so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I mean, on the grace front, you know, he looked good up until the end. Yeah, well, he hit himself, right? I mean, it went fast. Pancreatic cancer, when it when it kicks in, it goes fast. And this is our third pancreatic cancer Death. celebrity, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had uh, RBG and Alex Trebek. Trebek. Yeah. yeah, it's fast and it's awful. There's tragedy to it. And I think a graceful man, and I think that Grace was there in as much as we saw it publicly up until the end. Did you catch that he planned his own funeral? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so he, like, you know, he knew he, he knew he was going. Yeah. So he basically said, like, these are the songs I want played. This is who is speaking. Uh, and this is who, uh, this is the order that they're in. Here's the schedule of events. A yes. fucking playbill. Right? Did, you catch, you? did you catch the songs? <laughs> no. So there was a Tom Waits song. Fine. Like, that's appropriate. Then there was also Uptown Funk. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes. Alan Rickman specifically selected Uptown Funk uh, to be played at his funeral. I got something to say about Tom Waits. In the book, this is the only all caps I saw. I mean, he is meeting all kinds of celebrities, right? He's giving poetry readings for, you know, the prince. And uh, I mean, he's going to Paul Allen's. Co-founder of Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, he's going to like his parties and like everybody's there. He's hanging out with Mick Jagger. And there's the class he's floating around in is stunning in terms of its celebrity power. The only person in the book where it's got all caps is I met Tom Waits. All big caps. He's a big fucking Tom Waits fan. 
Ah, good stuff. All right, let's pause. Are you looking at my books? I am. I'm actually looking at your bookshelf. I want to see if there is anything that I can give as a gift to somebody. Uh, with my permission, I assume. Well, no, I was just going to take it off your shelf. Wait, 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 don't take it from me. I put time into this bookshelf. I actually want these books there. However, if you're looking to get some of these books, know a great store you can go to. Half Price Books. They're likely to have this entire catalog in their bookstore. And if not in their bookstore there, they can order it for you. But the thing is, I trust you. There's nowhere else that I can find a trusted bookseller to give me an equal recommendation. Sir, I disagree. You can find a trusted bookseller at Half Price Books. Ask a Half Price Books bookseller if you don't know what to read next or if you're looking for a gift idea. Really? Oh my goodness, yes. The Half Price Books booksellers are knowledge keepers. They're there to help you navigate their tremendous catalog. Excuse me, I've got to go now. <laughs> oh, good, because Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. And Half Price Books is online at hpb.com. The first of the inner life categories is man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? I'm inclined to say he liked it. I'm inclined, not like over the top tempted. One of the things that people are trying to get at is like, what makes you a good actor? There's one that I really love where he's talking about how... Actually, one thing that actors and dancers do is to actually use both sides of their brain at the same time. Because you have to hand yourself over completely to whatever are the emotional demands of a part. There's this kind of Geiger counter at exactly the same time assessing what's yeah. happening out there and what's happening there yeah. to the person you're talking to. And did this word land or now that one didn't land, now I'm going to have to pick up that word. But that's the punishing part of acting is... Yeah taking the rest of your body into this strange place that it finds it hard to recover from. I think part of what made him great was his presence in, in his roles. And therefore, I think that there's a lot of acceptance that comes with that and therefore a reflection that he likes. That's my logic for why I'm going yes to Man in the Mirror. There's certain amounts of evidence that one could argue no, yeah. but I'm going yes. I am too. And let's leave it at that because I don't think we can know. Yes. All right, let's move on. Category nine, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, we want to know how they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine, and would they leave their outgoing voicemail? I'm going to jump to the second part first. I think he'd leave his outgoing voicemail. I don't think he's high-minded. This is where I'm going to bring in the family guy. Hello. You've reached Alan Rickman at 555-0122. Please leave a message at the beep. Hello. Alan Rickman. It's Alan Rickman. Reminding you to move the pork chops from the freezer to the refrigerator so they defrost properly. Do not disappoint me. All right. But I, I agree with you, and that goes very back to your number one, the idea of being erudite. Yeah. One would assume that you would be a little too snobby, but I think that is part of the great irony of Alan Rickman. Yeah. Is that I think he would have left it. And now we go to the first part. Yeah, okay. Did he like the sound of his own voice? I didn't overthink it. I went There's, surely. I mean, the world loves the sound of his voice. And yeah. this is where I made a reference earlier in the show to like there is even science to prove it. Yeah. So there was a study in 2008, the University of Sheffield. They did a study to figure out who had the most perfect voice. So they'd used something like 50 voices of people recording a sentence, how they define perfect, it's which register the most emotional response. Mm. So sending shivers down our spine was the quote that they used. And they found the conclusion of the study that it was a combination of Alan Rickman's and Jeremy Irons' voice was the most perfect voice in the world at the time. That's wonderful. Good stuff. All right, let's move on. Category 10, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night? <sighs> I got one thing. Uh, regrets, it said nothing obvious. I, I wrote maybe some roles here and there, but not really. On private, you know, the no kids thing, I wondered. Yeah, that I definitely wrote down just because of the hints that he dropped. Yeah, but it didn't sound like it tortured him. 
I don't know exactly how to talk about this, but I do feel like whether you become a parent or not, that we all do have paternal instincts or maternal instincts. And I think he found an outlet for his paternal instincts. And I think that that's the important thing. I think like we should all know about ourselves that we do want to fulfill a kind of parental role, whether it's formal or not. He's clearly, if you read the journal, there are some mood swings, right? It's not like this guy is steady Eddie or anything like that. But I also think that he doesn't look like a necessarily tortured soul to me. Yeah. All right, category 11, good dreams, bad dreams. This is not about personal perception, but rather does this person have a haunted look in the eye, something that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, or unresolved trauma? This is a guy, I think, that gets very emotional and passionate about minor injustices. You know, when you talk about the little details that he wrote about in film, and he was also, you know, pretty involved in politics and aligning with the party. He's married or partnered with a politician. Yeah. I think the larger causes of the world and the state of the world and the way that it's going is a problem for him. Yeah. And I think that that, if anything, he would lose sleep over just humanity and where we're heading, societally or environmentally or so forth, I think is something, he's the type of guy that was generally bothered by it. Yeah. I think he was that genuine, that authentic, and that heartfelt. So you went bad dreams. You know, I didn't go bad dreams in the way of trauma. Yeah. But I went bad dreams in the way that— Like sensitive to the world or something? Sensitive. I think sensitive is greater than optimism for this guy. I also went bad dreams. I mean, you know, his dad died at a young age. I mean, he was eight years old, and he had a very close-knit family, and it sounds like a hard-scrabble kind of life. I do see something of a haunted look. I do see bad dreams, actually. You know, I mean, you just look in the eye and there's like, well, there's something going on there. Well, he's not well rested, you know? (laughs) And Emma Thompson said this in her eulogy. Yeah. You know, she said that uh, Alan Rickman was someone that gave so much of his time to other actors and other people in the industry. I don't understand where he ever found time for sleep. Yeah. So maybe some of that is true. Yeah. Category 12. This is the second to last category. Cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person. Or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them we're most curious about. What do you got? I'm going to go the fun part, and I'm going to go cocktail. Ah! Do you watch Bottle Shock? It's like the early days of Napa Valley. He is a person that owns a wine shop in France. He's a Britisher. Seems like Alan Rickman is kind of playing himself. Mm -hmm. He invents this idea for promotion, which is a contest between to test French wines against United States wines. I do kind of remember this. So a good bit of the movie is just them, him and this American sitting in a wine shop in France and just drinking wine and bantering back and forth, <laughs> which is exactly like, <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what I ex- like expect <laughs> hanging out with Alan Rickman to be like. <laughs> totally. And he's funny and he's condescending and you get to hear the voice. That's what I want. I yeah. want to have that kind of fun. I want to do the one-on-one. It can be wine. It can be scotch. I want to sit across the bar from him for several hours. I think I would get to the point of just the giggles. Yeah. I think I would really, really enjoy it. I went basically the same with a different substance. I went cannabis. I want to be high and listen to him, that voice. You know, we mentioned earlier the Jimmy Fallon thing with Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, uh-huh. Rickman comes on the show the next week and says, you were joking with me. And they, like, bust out some balloons and suck helium together. Yes. I pictured Alan Rickman, like, taking a hit off something as he's hitting that balloon and thinking, wow, that'd be really fun to just get high with him. And I think, you know, and it's mostly just to, like, hang. I, I don't think he's, like, a barrel of laughs necessarily. I think he's got a gleeful side, but I think he's got a tremendous tremendous amount of range. I think he really understands, like, the human condition. And uh, I think he gets pain. I think he gets rage. I think he gets gleefulness, you know? And I think to be a great actor, you have to understand that about people. And I'd love to get there probably hitting a bong. I like this idea of you go getting the munchies and with that taste of his just reaching for the foie gras. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a nice image. All right. Final category, the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Based on everything we've talked about, the big question is, do you want this life? Amen. So the positive I get, it's all there. It's what all are the things? A Cinderella story of success lauded by your peers, long-lasting, deep, loving 
connection, known for your generosity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The lifestyle is also— The lifestyle. That's that's the thing, I think, to talk about. Because the lifestyle looks extraordinary. I mean, in in some ways, it looks like all the things that on the surface make celebrity desirable. That who he's hanging out with and where he goes and the travel and the— great meals and the, I'll pick up the tab and off to New York and then it's on to Vienna and, you know. Yeah, the, he's living between New York and London and a lot of time in California. As and with trips to Africa and the Caribbean and, like, I mean, he's going all over the world and is living a very rich, finer things in life, you know, kind of thing. Literally a man of the world. I mean, the comparison with Bourdain, I think, is actually really, mental health issues aside, apropos. yeah. The strikes against pancreatic cancer at 69, awful, awful. Yeah. What else? It's whether or not that lifestyle actually looks all that great to begin with. I don't know. Like, what's funny is that on the flip side of that lifestyle, for me, there's a sort of never slowing down. There is a kind of all-consuming demand to be present as an actor. I mean, I think that that is what makes a great actor great, is that fully inhabiting the role in a non-judgmental way. Is that exhausting? I don't know. I hear what you're saying, and I see what you're saying. I contrast that with, uh, you know, sitting and reading a book or playing crossword puzzles and getting into a giggle trance with his partner. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. There's no slowing. It is fame and all the things that suck about it. It sort of brings me back to first principles and, like, I don't think I ever want to be famous because I think that the loss of privacy, you know, other people assuming they know you, the kind of um, disconnect that you might feel from the rest of the world, I think is something that's sort of haunting and troubling and hard. I think one of the things I love about him actually is that fame at 42, that he got to live 42 years or so as an everyman, right? It may be respected, you know, amongst a small community, but it wasn't Hans Gruber just walked into the room, you know? I think I'm a yes, Amit. I want your life, Alan Rickman, because— some of those things we just talked about in terms of his lifestyle and great taste, I think it's not just material wealth. I think it is experiential wealth. And I think to be present and to connect with a wide swath of people, even if they don't get to know who you really are, and I don't think anybody ever really knows who anybody ever really is, I think I just see too much here that I find desirable this is a good life, man. This you're, is a you're, good life. It's possible you're looking too hard for yeah, the negative. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think I don't want to overthink it. I, you know, the, not having kids maybe hurts, but I like the way he didn't have kids, you know? I, I, I like the way he was paternal and a foster parent or whatever. Yeah, I'm a yes. I too, but I'm a resounding yes. You were a bit of a reluctant yes. I think I'm a resounding yes. Pancreatic cancer side, I'm not for. Giving that, I'm not at all calling that anything but extremely, extremely, extremely difficult and painful. Yeah. I, I would like to know more about this kid's conversation. I would like to know, and I, we never will because these are private conversations between him and Rima of what the reason was and, and ultimately how he justified it. Yeah. You know, because he is a person, like I said, that is that is ponderous, and I want to know what he thinks about— You know, legacy and where do you leave this world if you're not doing it by reproducing? Mm. It's not something that is holding me back so much that I'm not giving a resounding yes. So, yes, I want your life, Alan Rickman. Like, and if we can't see, like, look at this one and say, that's a good life, then, you know, what are we doing? Yeah. Okay, Michael, uh, you are Alan Rickman. I am St. Peter, uh, the proxy for the gateway to all things afterlife. I understand you have played the voice of God before. However, that is not going to count here. So make your case as to why you should go forth. Acting is, above all else, about trying to put on display what it means to be human. I chose a range of roles to try and express the complexity of all of humanity. I tried to put that on display as a gift to audiences and to friends, which in my heart is a fundamentally generous act. I did that in my profession, but I also did that in all my relationships. And in actually everything I did, I tried to be as generous and as of service as possible. 
I was always trying to give more than I took. And I think that's the simplest case I can make. And for that, let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends about us. Help spread the word. Find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. And we also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thanks for listening. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.